Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Hello and welcome to Matters of Life and Death. As always, I'm Tim White. Over the month of August, my dad and I are going to be taking a little bit of a break, and so we're dipping back into the Molad archive to bring out some classic episodes from the past to rebroadcast again. Today, we've got a conversation all about suffering. Is it solely a consequence of the fall? Is it a problem we could eventually solve via technology and progress? And if not, how can Christians walk through this world of suffering well, lamenting and resisting pain without losing our final hope that Jesus' return will fix it all one day? Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. Um, as ever, I'm Tim Wyatt and I'm here with my dad, John Wyatt. Hi, John. Hi, it's good to be here. So it's quite unusual because whereas we normally record this podcast from two separate locations, uh, today we're in the same room staring at the same microphone. So it's a new experience for both of us. I'm not sure I like it all that much. Uh, before before we get stuck into today's topic, which is going to be slightly different as well, um, I want to give a bit of a health warning because uh, what we're going to talk about today is the question of suffering um, and I guess a kind of Christian's understanding and responses to suffering. But we want to just state right up front that there will be lots of people listening um, who might be experiencing some form of suffering or loss at this moment or, or, or in the recent past. And, and we want to be really aware that this is a very sensitive topic and we want to be understanding as it touches many of those who will be listening. Yes, and of course it's something that's very close to home uh, for many people who work in the health professions, myself included, and uh, really until I started working as a doctor I had very little personal experience of coming across uh, or being confronted by really tragic events and so on, and yet in my experience of a doctor and then particularly as a paediatrician, caring for many, many babies who were critically injured, some with brain damage, and some who were dying. Um, uh, I knew that the, these, this was a reality for people. And, and, and one of the things, of course, you learn as a doctor is that uh, suffering and evil isn't distributed in a very uh, even way across the human race. Mm. Some, some people seem to live lives which are barely touched by disaster and, and other people and families seem to have a, a terrible litany of repeated and inexplicable agony and pain. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I've been fortunate in my life to, to not have experienced any real major periods of kind of loss, suffering, pain, uh, disaster. Um, maybe my time is yet to come. But I guess as, as a doctor, as you say, it, must, it can never have been kind of far from your mind working uh, with critically ill babies and, and, and kind of wrestling with what does that mean as a Christian, as a doctor, to be surrounded by all this loss and pain? And I think one of the things I've observed, and, and that is that some uh, medical students who've you know, come from strong Christian backgrounds and um, they've inherited uh, somewhat simplistic ideas about loss and suffering. And, and basically, if you trust God and you have faith, then, then your life will go well and... Uh, and then once they start working as a doctor they're confronted by 
this inexplicable evil and tragedy which afflicts some people's lives. And and it often seems then as though that slightly simplistic um, theology that they learnt uh, from, maybe from their home church or as a student doesn't really seem to work in the real world. And I think I have observed some people who've, who've walked away from Christian faith because they, they've come to the conclusion that it, it just doesn't really work when confronted with the, the mess of suffering which, which we see in so many lives. I think a lot of Christians, when they first start to think about this problem, their kind of initial response is to say, well, you know, God made everything without suffering and pain and bleeding and dying and death, as we read in Genesis, and then the fall happened and humans are responsible for this broken world we live in. And then the end of the story is that God will revert back to that kind of prelapsarian bliss that we were always supposed to have. Is that your theology of suffering? Well, no, it isn't. And it, that sort of simplistic uh, understanding that, that uh, suffering is simply a consequence of the fall, I, I think really doesn't hold up. And, and I think one of the first things to think about is just the nature of the creation, and in particular, the nature of, of what it means to be human. And the extraordinary thing about the biblical understanding of what it means to be human is that we are created um, to be made out of dust. We're, we're made out of dust, we're made out of the same stuff as the rest of the earth. I mean, in our very name, uh, the first humans were called Adam uh, for the human, uh, which is taken from the Hebrew Adama, which is the ground. So. In, right from the beginning, human beings are seen as physical, dependent, frail and, and vulnerable. And, and so this idea that the world was created good, but it was also created profoundly fragile and, and therefore the potential for brokenness, it's, it seems to be woven into the very fabric of the creation and into the fabric of what it means to be human. Isn't that a challenge to our idea of the nature of God, though? Because I've often heard it said, you know, God only makes good things. And, and if God, who does not have fragility and brokenness kind of woven into him, if he was creating a universe as an overflow of his very being, wouldn't it, doesn't it make more sense that it would be made whole and perfect rather than, as you described, fragile and earthy? Well, and I think this is part of the mystery, isn't it? But, but a theme which you find throughout the whole scripture is who do you think you are to question me, as God says, about the way I've made the universe? I mean, it, that's, that's a question which is above our pay grade. What, why God chose to make us so fragile and vulnerable and, and broken is ultimately a matter for speculation. Although I do think, you know, Christian teaching has many hints about that, doesn't it? About how... God's power revealed in weakness is, is, a, is a constant theme, isn't it, in the scriptures? Yeah, absolutely. And this is reminding me of another podcast I listened to a while ago, actually, from another podcast that recommended the Bible Project, where they were talking about the theme of trees, of all things, throughout the Bible. And they started with an episode about how, in Genesis, humans are often likened to trees. And one of the way that is, is that uh, trees don't kind of exist independently, but they need to be rooted into the earth to survive. And in the same way, humans 
even before the fall and before sin needed to be rooted into the life of the triune God if they were to live forever. And, and immortality is not something that we own as a property in ourselves, but it is an ongoing gift from God. And that's true of kind of eternalness, but I think it's probably also true as we're talking about of our kind of non-fragility or our, 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 our lack of suffering. Um, and related to that is, a, is an issue which I've often discussed and, and I, I've been challenged by when I've spoken on these issues, and that is people say, well, God created a perfect world and, and therefore uh, it, it, it doesn't, dependence and vulnerability m must be not part of the original creation because God created a perfect world. But it's interesting that that concept of perfection is not really there in the Hebrew scriptures. Um, and in fact, when you think about what is your understanding of a perfect world, perfection is really a mathematical concept. You can talk about a perfect circle or a perfectly straight line or something, but to talk about a perfect world doesn't really make sense. And certainly, I don't think the biblical authors thought like that. What it does say is that what God created was good and indeed very good at the end of creation, uh, God pronounces, at the end of the creation narrative, God pronounces the creation very good. But I've heard it said that the Hebrew word for good really doesn't mean perfect, it, it means fit for purpose, that, that God has made a creation which is fit for his purposes. Uh, that doesn't mean that it's perfect in some mathematical way. So you're arguing or suggesting that contrary to kind of a lot of our Sunday school teaching, it's not simply that um, all kind of brokenness and fragility and hurt that is a consequence of that that we experience is directly correlated to the fall and the kind of entry of sin into, into creation. No, and that if you think about it, we come into this world utterly and totally dependent on the love and care of others, utterly fragile, utterly vulnerable, we go through this phase of our life when other people depend on us and and then uh, most of us are going to end our lives utterly dependent and fragile and vulnerable. And I don't think the scriptures teach that's a consequence of the fall. In fact, I think it is part of our very created humanity. Dependence is, is part of our creaturely nature. And, and I think... You know, it, when I'm challenged about that, and I have been quite frequently challenged about that, that statement, I would say, well, look at Jesus. Jesus, the Bible says, is, is a perfectly unfallen human being. And yet Jesus himself is utterly dependent and totally dependent on the love and care of his parents. And uh, as, as a baby, he needs to be fed. He needs to be washed. He needs to have his bottom wiped. Um, and at the end of his life on earth, uh, on the cross, Jesus is again utterly and totally dependent, and, and through his parched lips he croaks, I am thirsty, and yet the Bible teaches us he wasn't fallen. So, so if we see in Jesus the nature of what humanity was intended to be, we see a dependence. And we also kind of told throughout the New Testament that it was on the cross that we see the most perfect picture of who God is, triune, as well as the Son. And and that tells us, therefore, that God himself suffers and that it's the kind of the, the height of the glory of God on the cross was also this 
image of brokenness as you say and so there is something about if we are to be made in the image of a god who suffers must we also suffer and god isn't affected by the fall he is obviously outside of his creation and yet he still somehow experiences pain and loss yes and, and these are deep uh, waters aren't they and i know that there is a sort of ongoing controversy between theologians including biblical theologians about to what it means to say that God is a suffering God. And, and the, certainly the traditional understanding of, of theism was that uh, the divine nature was, was incapable of suffering and that therefore suffering in as much as Jesus suffers is only suffering within his human nature. But then I know there are other theologians who challenge that and who, who say that actually the the biblical picture is of a god who enters into suffering and, and perhaps that's something we'll come back to um but i i, I think it is interesting isn't it that, that christianity puts the cross at the, as the heart of its uh, the heart of its understanding as the symbol of this faith mm. and it it is remarkable that a that a a symbol of execution of torture of, of a barbaric um, human way of inflicting suffering on another human being. It, it's remarkable that that instrument of execution becomes the symbol of our faith. Definitely, definitely. And something easily overlooked, I think, kind of swimming in the waters of Christendom or post-Christendom that we are. I think it's often that case that a lot of Christians, I mean, I certainly did, come across this what's often called the problem of suffering as like one of a set of discrete kind of apologetics challenges to mm. faith that in the narrative I was coming kind of grew out of the Enlightenment and early kind of secularism or proto-secularism and you talk about people like Hume and, and Kant and Nietzsche and these kind of 1700, 1800, 19th century, uh, 20th century figures who are starting to probe and challenge Christianity and one of the arguments they use is you know the kind of supposed paradox that an all-powerful all-loving God yet there is suffering but what we're saying is actually this suffering is not a new problem if it's even a problem at all it's it's written into the faith itself for 2000 and plus years yes and so the question of how you address this issue this this human reality and of course at one level every human life is going to be affected by suffering and it may be that somebody listening to this so far your life has been relatively uncomplicated like as you say tim and yet the, the sad truth is at some point in your life, it is extremely likely that you will be confronted with some inexplicable uh, and, and, and extremely painful uh, form of suffering. And, and the question is then, how do we address this issue? And it, it's interesting that in the Eastern religions, the Asian Eastern religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, and so on, the fundamental idea seems to be that that suffering is in fact an illusion that it, that the only the way ultimately of coming to terms with suffering is to say that it it doesn't have reality it's simply an illusion and what we have to do is somehow transcend the illusion mm -hmm. to understand that it isn't real and this is the way of uh, addressing the nature of suffering yeah and that I mean, I've always struggled with the idea that somehow we can kind of meditate our way above the pain and, and, 
and and kind of transcend and by by force of kind of stillness or something center ourselves so much so that we no longer notice and even if that was achievable which I, which I'm pretty skeptical is that even desirable the idea that what we want to do is create this kind of super cast of people who are so holy they kind of float on a six inch cloud of kind of smug self-knowing and they don't actually are unaffected and buffeted by the waves that ordinary human beings go through. Well, I think that's right. And it, I remember traveling in uh, Sri Lanka, which is uh, a predominantly Buddhist country. And you, everywhere you go, you see symbols of the, of the Buddha in contemplation with this slightly seraphic smile. Uh, on his face so whatever evils tragedies uh, deprivation abuse horrors are going on in everyday life uh, there is this image of the Buddha who who is able to contemplate beyond uh, and, and see the the illusory nature of suffering and I think I think in contrast Christianity takes suffering desperately seriously it's mm. it's, it's seen as as a profoundly important and, and and even threatening reality which we have to come to terms with. Mm. So we're saying that some kind of ancient uh, other faith kind of perspectives are about seeing suffering as an illusion to be transcended. Uh, moderns, as we discussed briefly, kind of see it as an intellectual, theological, apologetic kind of problem to be solved. And I think we often see that that it drives forward a lot of kind of technological progress and is, is the idea that there are like issues and problems and heartbreaks and pains and disasters and we just need to work harder, do more science, invent more stuff, develop ourselves as a species and we can kind of come out of that. Neither of those seem a particularly Christian approach. What would a Christian kind of dwelling with suffering look like? Well, on the one hand, of course, uh, you know, as a health professional, we're called to try to... Um, minimize and reduce unnecessary pain and and suffering and so on and therefore in one element yes we do see suffering as a problem but ultimately uh, we recognize that um, particularly towards the end of life with people doing terminal care that uh, that suffering is reality and uh, a statement um, saying which I found extremely helpful and which was I found in a document written by palliative care uh, department said that suffering is not a question which demands an answer it's not a problem which demands a solution it's a mystery which demands a presence and I think that idea that rather than try and find some explanation we should recognize that suffering ultimately is a mystery it's a mystery why this particular person has this particular tragedy or why this particular event has happened to me Mm. Uh, I, I don't need to look for some kind of explanation. I can't look out for some explanation. But what we're called to do is to be there with the suffering one. Suffering is a call to the rest of us. It's an appeal to the rest of us to be there with those who are suffering. Is that in some way a kind of quite beautiful but a, a convenient kind of get-out clause for Christianity? That's almost like ducking the question put up by some of those kind of modern challenges and saying, oh, don't really have a pat answer for your kind of issue about problem of suffering. So we're going to kind of replace it with bromides around presence and meaningfulness and kind of like weasel out of it that way. How would you respond to people who would see it as a bit of a ducking the issue? Well, 
Certainly that is one of the accusations which has always been put at Christianity, that that it's a kind of masochism, a, a, mm. a kind of passivity, that it that instead of um, saying, look, we've got to we've got to solve this, we've got to uh, get rid of this problem, that, that Christianity uh, leads to um, a fatalistic and, and, and slightly masochistic acceptance of suffering. But I, I, I would push back and say, I, I think that in my experience, this is far from it being a way of ducking the problem. It's, it's a calling, which is a much harder calling. I mean, one of the fascinating things in, in what happens in medicine is that there's a natural tendency for doctors and health professionals to want to spend the most of the time with the patients who are getting better. Hmm. Um, and and there's a, uh, we, we really enjoy spending time with our patients who are, are getting better. And there's a conversely, there's a natural tendency when we are confronted by patients who for whom we can do nothing and who are deteriorating and clearly dying, our natural tendency is to move on rapidly uh, because it's so uncomfortable. And one of the things I learned as a doctor was that that was I had to reverse that. Mm-hmm. You know, actually, we don't need to spend time with the patients who are getting better. They're getting better without us. Uh, the people who really need us are the people for whom medically we don't have anything to offer. And and so I tried to make it a practice of spending my time as much as possible with the babies who were severely brain damaged or or and with parents who were struggling with the impact of a terminal illness that their child had and so on because i didn't have anything medically to offer but just by being there i discovered i could i could make a difference but but it, even though it was sometimes quite quite painful and demanding to to spend time to be the presence hmm. and i think that leads on to talking about this idea that's kind of the fancy theological term would be an over-realized eschatology and how some Christians try and resolve this issue by by saying, well, no, we can actually overcome suffering, not by technological might or by education and progress, but by the supernatural intervention of God. And therefore, and, and, and you know, some have gone as far to say, you know, that God's will is not that anyone should suffer. And therefore, if people are, it's because they don't have enough faith, they're not praying enough, they haven't done the right kind of liturgy or service or they're 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 being punished for sins and there's a kind of sense in which suffering is not a mystery suffering is a is a theological crisis and it needs a theological solution through the kind of interventionist power of a miraculous healing god yes and unfortunately you know i have come across a number of times when um, a christian uh, who is suffering maybe with a a terminal illness or some other very major illness and they are being told constantly just have faith and claim your healing and and um and they feel this implicit criticism is that the fact that they're not being healed is is evidence that uh they haven't got enough faith or there's some hidden sin that hasn't been acknowledged uh, or some other barrier to god's working in their life and and so it's almost that they they try to persuade themselves they are being healed they don't want to talk about the possibility that they might die and and it seems as though that that kind of 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 christian faith which which i believe is mistaken 
is, is actually a kind of barrier to uh, really full acceptance and being able to be honest and truthful about their their uh, their current condition and there's even been some fascinating studies done of I think particularly in the United States of, of Christians who are um, terminally ill and how contrary to what people might expect uh, the Christians are more likely than their other kind of fellow patients to request what ultimately is futile treatment and kind of to desperately to extend their life at all costs, um, which for me is kind of a tragedy. Yes, and it, it is, unfortunately, um, there is evidence of that, certainly in the States and elsewhere. That, um, And it, it's interesting that when people are asked about this by the researchers, why was it that even though you have faith in God, you're insisting on having uh, every possible medical treatment. Uh, there seem to be two fundamental answers. Number one, well, you have to have every possible treatment because otherwise that's like euthanasia and euthanasia is wrong. So whenever, even whenever there's any possible treatment, you must have it, which is a kind of vitalism. Or else, um, well, I'm trusting God to do a miracle, but if I wasn't to accept treatment, then that would be lack of faith. So I've, I've got to have the treatment and be admitted to the intensive care unit in order to give God the best chance of doing his miracle. And obviously both of those seem pretty, pretty uh, poor reasons for uh, the end result, which is often that people do have unnecessary medical interventions and suffering uh, at the end of life. Hmm. So we've been kind of thinking about this question about whether Christianity is masochistic and and that kind of fa famous critique by by the philosopher Nietzsche who kind of derided Christianity as a kind of religion for slaves and weaklings and 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 you know and I guess my initial response is that there's you know there's degrees of truth as we've been saying suffering is something not to be overcome but to be endured at certain seasons but ultimate this ultimately this is a time limited process and that God is going to vanquish suffering and pain and death entirely one day one day soon we pray and and so we're not simply kind of quiet you know some people don't like the fair heresy of quietism where you just kind of sit there and immune yourself from the rest of the world actually what we're saying is that there is a there is an age a last age that we're in now where suffering is baked into our existence and it, it appears not something that god intends to eradicate through series of miraculous interventions though of course that does happen from time to time but really it's about saying that we're waiting until God does in the second coming. Well yes and therefore we shouldn't expect uh, necessarily God to abolish suffering in our own lives or in the lives of others um, and, and in fact there's this deeper wonderful idea that God himself has entered into the experience of suffering and taken it into his own into his own body so that the implications of of, of the cross um, of, of a God revealed as, as as a God who takes suffering into his own being uh, he doesn't God has refused to hold himself aloof from violence and suffering but he he in some sense absorbs it into his very being and and so the the picture of divine love which we which we see in the cross is, is an extraordinary thing because on the one hand it it's immensely powerful and it's a, this God's power which can obliterate death and bring uh, life and healing and yet there's a fragility about 
um, God's the divine love, and and it, so that it's it almost seems that that genuine love does require the vulnerability to open ourselves to an open to the other, and therefore divine love is both powerful but also vulnerable. Mm. And so let's move on to sort of come to the close to talk a bit more about how the the cross will ultimately redeem this um, suffering and evil that we've been talking about. I mean, there's a famous verse you sent me before when preparing for this from Revelation 13 that says this, um, all whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. Why is that so important to you? Well, the way that I was taught as a... Um, both at Sunday school and and also as a student was a sort of a, a history of the world that God creates this wonderful world. It's all perfect. He then uh, it all goes wrong, uh, and then God has a rescue plan, and uh, his, the rescue plan involves sending His Son, and His Son dies and is raised, and so, and then God uh, restores uh, the world to to its unfallen state. But actually, there are hints in the scriptures which point to a much more complex and nuanced story. And several times it talks about the, the book, the Lamb's Book of Life, which is before the foundation of the world. And yet, if you think about it, that lamb is, is a paschal lamb. It's the, it's the Easter lamb. So the story of Easter was there before the foundation of the world. And I've heard people suggest that in, in some sense, the creation is not the beginning of the story. There is there is a story that happens before creation, and, and perhaps that story is the story of the cross, uh, the, the a story of inexplicable evil, which is then uh, penetrated by God's love and power and transformed into blessing and healing. And that's the story of the cross, and that comes before creation. And then the entire cosmos is a, is a kind of theatre which has been created in order that this wonderful story of redemption can work its way out through history. So it's not in the sense that God's plan wasn't to create this paradise. Humans ruined it. And so God had to go to plan B, which involves sending his son to die for our sins and rise again and ultimately return a second time to lead us all into glory, where we'll be given resurrection bodies and live in eternity and complete the cycle. It's that it was always plan A because the lamb was always slain before the fall, before Adam and Eve, before the serpent, before the tree. The lamb was already and already slain. How does that change our kind of understanding or how we respond to suffering knowing that truth? Well, I think it, it makes us focus on this idea that, re, that the story of redemption is actually written into the fabric of creation. It is interesting, isn't it, that the dying and rising, the seed falling, uh, winter and spring you know wherever we look in the natural creation we see images of redemption we see images of of evil being overcome and death being overcome by life evil being overcome by good and so on and so i think this idea that actually that's not a surprise the cosmos if the cosmos is a theater for the drama of redemption we shouldn't be surprised that we find this story of redemption everywhere we look and, and also it suggests that, that yes, there is the central uh, point of history, which is the incarnation, cross and resurrection, which is where the focal point of redemption. But I also think that 
God's plan is to write the same story in some sense into our own lives. And so our lives become a kind of cameo, a kind of a small story which reflects the big story so that we meet inexplicable loss, and suffering and, uh, and pain. But in God's grace and by his power, these things can be redeemed and transformed. So my little story then becomes a cameo of the big story. And I, I personally find this a way of, of helping, of finding some kind of meaning in inexplicable and tragic events which have happened in my life and which I have seen in many other lives. And so as we come into land then, what, what place does kind of the traditional understanding of Christian hope play in there? Because again, the kind of story I was told in Sunday school was that, yes, the world is broken and suffering now, but we are being prepared and we will one day be taken to, to live in a new creation in which there is, as the Revelation says, no more pain, no more crying, no more bleeding, no more death. Do you want to kind of finesse and nuance that like you have with the kind of just so story of creation <laughs> and say, actually, it's more complicated than that? Or are we still looking forward to a, a an ultimate redemption where we don't have any experience of suffering and loss? Well, I think it is plain, certainly from the resurrection, from the revelation accounts, that God's ultimate plan is the abolition of suffering. Although, interestingly, I've also heard it said, you know, that the scars are there. Mm. Jesus, when Jesus, uh, the first thing he does when he's uh, the risen Jesus appears to his disciples, he, sh he shows them his scars. And there's clearly something very profound there, isn't there? That, that yes, Jesus' body is raised, but it carries within itself into eternity the marks of suffering. And, and maybe that's something unique for Christ, but it also maybe that's something that the redeemed creation the restored creation will carry within it redeemed those marks that because suffering and glory are are intricately linked i think these are themes we'd like to carry on uh, maybe in our part two mm. uh, and see and particularly i think we want to talk more practically about what does this mean for us personally as we're confronted how can we learn to be mm. more faithful to to suffer faithfully uh and 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 discover ways of of of, of discovering for ourselves the redemptive nature of suffering. You're listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. We kind of started by talking about how contrary to what a lot of people might have been taught in Sunday school, uh, a sense of fragility and, and maybe even brokenness is inherent to the created order and and that kind of dependence actually is not a bad thing but it is it, christianity has kind of wrestled with suffering from the very beginning and then we moved on to talk about how un, unlike kind of modernist approaches to seeing suffering as a problem that needs to be solved a kind of authentically christian understanding is that suffering is a mystery which requires a presence that we most ultimately see in in the person of jesus uh, and, and today we wanted to move on to talk about um, some kind of what in in the light of that theology of suffering or that ethic of suffering what what would uh, more kind of faithful Christian biblical responses look like um, and and you wanted to start by talking about the kind of practice of godly lament yes I, I think this is a, a theme which is being increasingly rediscovered in the last um, decade or so uh, because 
it's it's very noticeable to me that so much about modern Christian worship, and I think it's particularly true in evangelical Protestant worship and, and church services, it seems to have this very uh, basic, positive, upbeat, celebratory mode. Mm. Um, and at its worst, it seems that the, the, the person leading worship is almost like a, uh, 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 like a cheerleader, you know. Is everybody praising God this morning? Is everybody <laughs> feeling happy? Uh, I can't hear enough about you. How, how much are we praising God this morning? And, and the whole emphasis is very positive, very upbeat, um, emphasizing the goodness of God and so on. And yet, when you turn to the Bible, and particularly to the Psalms, uh, so much of the Psalms is about pain and suffering and, and, and godly people pouring out to God, where are you, O Lord, and, and why is the wicked uh, triumphing? And so this seems to be a sort of bit of a mismatch between um, the nature of, of, of worship as it's expressed, particularly in the Old Testament, and, and this very positive, upbeat uh, theme. I mean, is that something you're aware of? Yeah, definitely. I think I, I would agree with that kind of analysis that, you know, I've spent a lot of my time worshipping in kind of what would be described as charismatic evangelical churches. And there is a kind of almost kind of thuddening repetitive of some of the some of the worship music that we talk about, which comes back to the, the same themes. And they're good themes to sing about. And there's a really important place for kind of praise uh, and for kind of um, kind of hopeful joyfulness in worship, but it is when you look at the psalm, which are effectively the kind of the songbook of the people of Israel, that kind of you know give voice to to the emotions that God's people are thinking and, and give language for them to talk to God through poetry and song. It, uh, an astonishingly high percentage of the psalms would could be described as as psalms of lament. And whereas I'm struggling to think of even maybe one or two contemporary popular worship songs which express similar themes. And I've talked to a number of people who've faced personal tragedy themselves and, and have been so struggling with, with feelings of, of, of loss and, and bereavement and pain and struggle. And then they feel they can't even go to church because it just feels false. You know, they, they can't celebrate with everybody else because that's that's not where they are and and so it just seems wrong that that our corporate worship isn't able to uh, encapsulate this this the experience that which many people are going through and i i think i've been very helped by reading uh, a number of authors writing about the theme of lament and this this idea that that the, the godly lament that the godly people lamenting to God is an important theme of of the scriptures and and lament is is a way of taking pain and suffering seriously instead of saying, "Oh well, praise God anyway uh, no this is this is something to be taken seriously, and it's a kind of a way of taking the brokenness of human experience to God and, and asking him and saying, where are you? Demanding an answer. Um, the, the person in the, in the lamentary is, is crying out to God. But what instead of just expressing praise, they're expressing hurt and confusion and disappointment and even anger. And it, it is striking how sometimes... Um, I mean, think of the book of Job as an example, where Job says some very, very harsh things to mm. God. 
And yet, interestingly, when God appears eventually at the end of the book, he never says to Job, well, you know, I think you, you overdid it a bit there, Job. I mean, you should have turned, you just watched some of your language. He doesn't say that at all. The people who are criticised are Job's so-called comforters. And, and God says, they said of me things that were not true. Mm. So it was the people who were coming up with kind of explanations for, for Job's suffering that God criticises. He doesn't criticise this this expression of, of pain anger and confusion and i think that's a really important point because i think it's it's easy as particularly as kind of like modern evangelicals to read some of the psalms of lament or passages in job and elsewhere in the old testament and just to kind of internally wince because it feels scandalous potentially even blasphemous to be saying such things to directly to god himself and there's a sense in which you're never really taught this from the pulpit, but I think we all often imbibe a sense that like, well, when you go and talk to God, you need to make sure that your theology is all lined up and don't <laughs> accuse him of things that we know Paul says aren't true in Romans and, and you know, don't, you know, so, and yet so much of the Psalms is David saying, you know, I can't believe that you are making me, you uh, know, your anointed king suffer worse than anyone else has ever suffered. And we're like, is that actually true though? I mean, is he really worse than anyone else? And and it should his status as king really protect him from so is that how God works? And and it, it's it's naturally filled with all these questions. And actually you're, what is striking is that one, these Psalms are in the Bible, in the canon of scripture. Uh, endorsed implicitly by Jesus himself when he quotes from elsewhere from the Old Testament but also that, that as there's no there's no sense that God is is upset with David for bringing this raw frankly theologically inaccurate kind of heart cry to him <laughs> no, that's absolutely right but I think what also is true and, and and this is also true in my own experience that is that when you internally have this uh, terrible sense of anguish and loss and despair what you discover the psalms in a new way you discover that these words actually i don't have to try and find my own words to express this because there are godly words here mm-hmm. in scripture and therefore a purpose i can take this psalm and make it my own i can mm-hmm. i can i can say these things to god i can pray this prayer and 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 in in some senses that's what the psalms are for the psalms are to give us godly words that that we can use words which even god has breathed out inspired mm. so that we can use them back to him it's a real gift a, a kindness i think from the lord to both put these in the bible both because it gives us permission to be raw and honest and, and bring our hurt and our confusion and our pain to God because we see that, you know, David and other figures of the faith did it as well. But it, as you say, it also gives us the language where we might not be able to express it. And, and, and how, as you say, how many times have people throughout the, the millennia recited some of those iconic psalms and those iconic lines uh, because it, it touches something of their own hard experience? I think it's a, it's a profound kind of kindness, a gift to God from, a, from God to us. Yes, and I've just remembered that uh, earlier on in the Ukrainian war, there was a, I think, a video that went the rounds, wasn't it, of of Christians praying one of the Psalms yeah. uh, when they were actually under attack. And um, the line is like, you know, in a city under bombardment, I sought your face or something like that. It was incredibly yeah. apposite. Yeah. So I, I think there is there's some real significance here. And the... 
this theme of godly lament it seems almost the high point of the of the personal laments is in psalm 22 my god my god why have you forsaken me and this this sort of excoriating painful psalm uh, pouring out uh, a sense of of loss and forsakenness but then going through this movement and it it seems there frequently is a movement in the process of lament it, it it starts with us just expressing the pain to God and, and including anger and disappointment. And then it, it moves from that place. It, it, it gradually moves to a place of submission uh, and then ultimately to, to letting go, to, to relinquishment. And um, I, so lament doesn't get stuck. It's sort of... It, it has a movement in it, a, a progress towards ultimately this place of letting go. And I think that's really, uh, really healthy because I think while we'd all recognise that there is something really positive and appropriate about allowing yourself to be honest with God and to be raw and emotional and if you're angry, be angry, perhaps lingering in that place too long can actually kind of lay down kind of emotional spiritual scar tissue on on our wounds and and doesn't actually um lead us towards a place of finding that redemption that we were talking about about last week and so i think as you say it's really clear that there is this transition where a lot of the psalms begin with really angry raw kind of accusation at god uh, and of a real acute suffering, but as David or the psalmist, whoever has written it, talks through talks to God, they almost talk through their emotions, and they start to be able to kind of recenter themselves on those timeless truths, and they end in a place which is much more accepting, reconciling, um, maybe even kind of that idea we talked about last week about suffering as a as a mystery that can't be solved, but it can be kind of lived through. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think one of the dangers for people who are going through agony and suffering and loss is that you get stuck in this place of despair and hopelessness and and you find it almost impossible to, to move on from, from that place. And, um, and, and therefore, I mean, there's definitely a place for... Uh, for, for expert help in and counseling psychotherapy pastoral care which which can help of someone coming alongside the suffering one and helping them who who is in some way become stuck in this in this in this pit and you know i went through an experience of um intense uh, depression and and uh, had a psychiatric breakdown and um and ended up in in a place of deep despair and hopelessness and it was really the love of others and then expert psychiatric and psychotherapeutic help which was able to to help me to move on and and to find uh healing a gradual process of healing but and for me i think a lot of the reason why i've i've reflected more about suffering and read around it and, and tried to think about it. is not only my experience as a as a doctor and a pediatrician but also from my own experience of suffering has enabled me to to think more deeply about that experience 
And I think this process of using lament is 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 a is a way of uh, of moving on. And I, th- I think we see it most clearly in the, in the prayer of Gethsemane, mm-hmm. where Jesus Himself, you know, here is God in human form, and yet He Himself is is taking on the role of the sufferer, and um, He he cries out to God, uh, if it's possible, let this cup, if it's possible, uh, take this away. Uh, but ultimately, there's this wonderful prayer, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And it does seem to me that that Gethsemane prayer is in some way the key that unlocks the prison of suffering. If if I'm able genuinely to say that, nevertheless, let your will be done, uh, then then it becomes possible for God, through the Spirit, to redeem gradually, to bring blessing and healing out of this experience. Does that mean accepting that it was God's will for the suffering to happen in the first place, or is that, or can we hold a tension between saying? I'm going to hand over to God, I'm going to move from lament to kind of relinquishment and submission, but at the same time I refuse to believe that the same Father God uh, really wanted this awful thing to happen to me. Well, that's why it's so important to have the first part of that phrase, suffering is a mystery. Um, You know, I, I think there's a great tendency for us to want to know everything, to want to understand everything. And, and, to, and there's a great temptation when we're trying to help someone else. It's almost like there's this overwhelming temptation to say, well, can't you see that God was doing this? God was helping you to understand. Can't you see that? Um, and yet, of course, we have no right to say that. I don't know what ultimately, why I went through these deep waters of suffering. I don't know why many of the people I've tried to help go through their own painful places. Uh, it's ultimately a mystery, um, but what I do believe uh, is that there is nothing that can happen, nothing, however evil, however apparently uh, capricious and meaningless and pointless and cruel. There's nothing which cannot, in some sense, be transformed by God's grace into blessing and healing. There was another line I wanted to do before we moved on from the idea of lament, which which you mentioned earlier, which was really, really fascinating and quite profound to me, which is that practicing lament ultimately is is holding God to account in the light of his character as revealed in Scripture and in the face of, of Jesus. That it's saying, you know, if we didn't really believe that God is a good God who loves us, who weeps with us alongside lament, who hates the fact that that people suffer and die... Um, we wouldn't bother lamenting to him because he'd be an impassive kind of distant deity who is unmoved by the fact. But the, but lament effectively is saying, I'm pouring my heart out to God because I believe that God a wants to hear and b that God is moved by what he hears and 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 suffers with me. That's ab- absolutely right. You see, and and both the kind of Eastern religions, which say ultimately suffering is just illusion, or modern. Um, physicalism or materialism which says well suffering just happens you know bad things happen you know get with it you know uh, weird things go on in in someone's brain so even if you take something 
terribly evil, like what's happening in Ukraine at the moment. Mm. You know, the materialist said, well, you know, Putin's just got a weird kind of connections going on in his brain and he happens to be, you know, and there's soldiers who are doing his commands and people are getting killed and tortured. You know, it just happens. It's, that's, that's the nature of suffering. And, and Christianity cannot say that. Christianity says, no, um, ultimately God exists god is faithful this is god's universe and so the lamenter is 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 bringing this to god and saying how can you allow this to happen god how can i learn more about your uh, presence in this situation and it seems to me that what the miracle of the incarnation and the cross and so on is is that god doesn't explain the suffering he enters into it mm. and you know the it's only recently that I've uh, understood more about those terrible words from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, you know, I've sometimes thought that if we were the writing the Gospels and you know, this was the Son of God and he was dying for our sins. And then, you know, we heard these strange words coming from his mouth. We would think maybe we should just airbrush that bit out, you know, because that doesn't seem to quite fit. What is the Son of God doing saying these words? <laughs> but I think what most Bible scholars believe, and which seems to make most sense, is that Jesus was quite deliberately quoting from Psalm 22. In other words, he is taking these words of the golden lament and he is himself taking them into his own being. In other words, he is quoting Psalm 22 back to God. And so in some extraordinary uh, and mysterious way, God is lamenting to God. God is expressing the pain to God. And so lament has entered into the very heart of the Godhead um, uh, through this extraordinary uh, moment on the cross. Hmm. I mean, I remember reading once that there is a kind of evidence that in the kind of rabbinical tradition of the of the day, there was almost like a kind of thing where you would you would say the first line of a psalm or of a famous passage of of scripture and because kind of educated people were so drilled in the torah that simply saying my god my god why have you forsaken me everyone who heard it would immediately know the rest of psalm 22 off by heart and know therefore that jesus is not just snipping out one bit of the lament the start of the lament journey and leaving it there but he is implicitly saying i'm going on this journey which ends at the end of psalm 22 with with that kind of upward motion of but yet you lord remain the same you know and um you know posterity will serve him and future generations will be told about the lord they will proclaim his righteousness declaring to a people yet unborn he has done it and and the psalmist here is is David again has started in a really dark, despairing place, and yet through that kind of honest lament ends, as we talked about earlier, this this motion towards submission and acceptance, and 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 placing God back in His rightful place on the throne. And Jesus is really deliberately echoing that movement. Yes, and and I think it's really important again in thinking, you know, taking this full orbed Christian understanding of suffering that the story doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop with acceptance. It isn't a kind of stoicism that says, I'm, I just grit my teeth and accept these terrible realities. There's a beautiful verse in Hebrews chapter 12 that, that says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him 
endured the cross mm. and despised the shame. And so ultimately, the final destination of suffering, the final destination of the godly lament is joy. And um, But that may well be an experience that we're not going to have uh, fully in this life. We can start to experience that. And, and, you know, that has been my own personal testimony that through uh, a period of, uh, of intense internal anguish and confusion and despair and loss, gradually, by God's grace, I have started to experience some of the strange joy that can come through that experience. And in particular, that now that episode that I went through feels like a strange gift that's been given to me, uh, giving me resources and insights and, and experiences which I can share with others, that, that, uh, that, that I can encourage other people who are perhaps going through the intense period of depression and, and suffering, that, that this doesn't have to be the end of the story, that there is a way forward that God can redeem uh, however tragic and painful the situation is. Mm. I've heard similar people, I've heard people say similarly when they've had uh, maybe an experience of a bereavement or, or some other kind of extreme and shocking suffering that very much an unwanted gift, but in, in some sense, once you've gone through it, it is uh, in a kind of mysterious, dark way, a, a blessing um, as well as a, a terrible, a terrible loss. And I, and I think it's worth noting, as you say, about that, that we've got to hold before us that kind of hope. It's not simply stoicism, but but Christian hope is different to other kind of belief systems which say things are bad now, but in the future, God's going to make or gods will make everything OK. And and, and it's about um, doing the kind of the rubbish stuff now so you get good stuff in the future, kind of deferred gratification. Whereas, as we talked about last week, the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world was rose again and has triumphed and conquered already that's already happened that the victory is secure it's not some kind of nebulous hope in a kind of worldly sense of hope we're not hoping that god will will turn things out in the end and will end suffering once and for all but we know that he's already done it and we are living in this kind of in between now and not yet phase while it comes to fruition but there's no doubt Jesus has already died and rose again, and our hope is therefore secure. That's right. And, and this wonderful idea that actually, in some sense, those celebrations have already started. Mm. The, the celebrations of, the, of the, the lamb who has triumphed. And if we listen carefully, we can hear echoes of that melody we can we can and 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 that melody can penetrate even the most terrible place the place of suffering the deathbed the torture chamber uh, can be penetrated by a melody by a fragrance that is coming from the new heaven and the new earth and 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 and, and so this is the re the realism of christian hope it, mm. it, it's rooted in the present it's rooted in reality but at the same time, it refuses to despair. It and it it, it holds the the reality and it holds the faithfulness of God, and and this becomes a, I think a daily discipline. I think of practicing. So so perhaps as we come to the end, it's just worth thinking about some practical ways we can learn to be faithful and in resisting evil and despair and depression. Um, and I, I do think that one way is just the practicing godly lament. And we can do this both individually, but
but also I corporately I think there is a real place for mm. um, for, di- for for lamenting together mm. and maybe a challenge there to the songwriters of the church to kind of take up their pens and and give us words and language set to music that that helps us express some of the things that the psalmists are expressing as well yeah I, I'm, I'm just reminded of a conversation I had with a Sri Lankan Christian uh, who years ago was uh, trying to support uh, a Christian church that had been devastated in the Civil War and had seen uh, people slaughtered, terrible disaster. And he said he'd travelled up to the north of the country where the Civil War was, and he's, he met with the church with the survivors of, of this massacre that had taken place. And he said, we spent the morning in lament, and and we we cried out to God, we wept together, we we expressed all the loss and and we and we read these psalms of lament and so on and then in the middle of the day we stopped we wiped our tears we had a cup of tea and a meal together and then we in the second half of the day we said right how can we start to rebuild and look towards the future and I was just very struck by that you know it sort of it was it was taking it seriously it wasn't pretending that terrible things was happening but it didn't stop there we then said right how can we now praise god and practically uh make a difference here and now do you have any other um kind of tips advice and wisdom about about beyond the men other kind of godly ways of responding to suffering i think honesty is is so important one of the things again i've found is that uh, when i speak uh, about this kind of topic in public it's quite common for me afterwards people say can I come and talk to you and they it's almost like they want to share a masonic handshake you know? <laughs> and they say not many people know this but actually you know and they then want to share their own experience and and what I found I mean it's wonderful they want to share that with me but I think it's so sad that, that it's often they don't feel that anyone else can they can't talk about it they they have to adopt a kind of facade uh, when they go to church mm. of, of cheerfulness and optimism, which doesn't really reflect the truth. And so I do think this process of honesty, of transparency, of walking openly with one another is, is one of the ways in which we practice resilience to evil. And we can support one another only if we are prepared to be honest. And I think you know, it maybe doesn't shouldn't have to be like this, but there is a challenge there for particularly Christian leaders to model that and to kind of show their scars first, to give permission to the people in churches to, to be equally honest with each other. Um, and I'm aware that's an easy thing for me to say, but I, I do wonder whether there is a greater need for kind of preachers and leaders and teachers to be more upfront about their own battles and the skeletons in their closet and their kind of triumphs and, and failures um, in a way that, that creates space for that kind of honesty. Well, and, and, you know, I can't help thinking about some of the recent scandals, the abuse scandals and so on, where it becomes apparent that the, the image that the leader has been presenting mm. from the front has not been the truth and how utterly devastating that is when, when the deceitfulness and the hypocrisy uh, becomes apparent. I think another thing I'd want to talk about would be uh, a, a Christian community, you know, um, and, and particularly the practicing hospitality, about Christian friendship. Um, the more we build up these uh, community links, the more we, we become a resilient 
fellowship where we can support one another. I think one of the sad things about suffering is it often causes people to withdraw. I mean, I'm well aware of that myself, that, that when I'm going through deep waters internally, I think my tendency is to withdraw and yet I know that actually that's bad. It's bad for me and it's bad for others. I need to practice um, this communal way of, sh- of sharing mm-hmm. uh, together and being able to support one another. Uh, and I suppose finally, I, I, I just want to talk again about the, this discipline, a daily discipline of Christian hope. It's like every day I have to get up and say, I am going to practice the discipline of hope. Yes, it would be possible for me to wallow in all the terrible things. It would be possible for me to fill my mind with despair, with with evil. Uh, but I refuse to do that. I'm going to uh, set my mind on the character of God. I'm going to remind myself of his promises and of his nature. I'm going to remind myself of what God has done in my past. And I'm going to try and find a way then of living today in the reality of Christian hope. Yeah, well, I think we'll probably have to draw our conversation to a close there. Um, I hope our kind of conversation reflections were, were interesting and useful to some of you listening. Thanks so much for going on this mini two-part journey with us. Um, potentially more normal service resumes next week or picking up some other issue in ethics and science technology. Um, but um, if you want to, to dig into some of this stuff, I know John's uploaded some things onto his website about suffering and hope. Um, which you should check out. That's uh, johnwyatt.com. As always, to get in touch with us, just email molad, M-O-L-A-D, at premier.org.uk. But otherwise, um, thanks for listening. Um, We'll speak to you next week. You've been listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable.